We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to Buzz Beat Radio, your premier Charlotte Hornets show. All right, welcome in. This is episode 50 of Buzz Beat Radio. Episode 50. That is unbelievable, honestly. So thanks to everyone who's uh, stuck in there with us and, and been here since the beginning. It's hard for us to believe that we've really been here over a year now and 50 episodes in. But we're very appreciative uh, of all the support. Uh, this is BuzzBeat Radio. We are a proud member of the Almighty Baller Radio Network. <clears throat> and don't forget about our good friends over at SportsChannel8.com. They got a lot of coverage coming today. Big game right down the road for me in Charlottesville, Virginia. The Heels, a little a desperate Carolina team, I would say, Brian. If it's not too early to say desperate as conference play is just really beginning, but they're desperate coming up to Charlottesville today. So check in with Sports Channel 8. They'll have you covered with all ACC basketball coverage. Um, And we're going to cover the West Coast trip for the Hornets today, which was a very pleasantly surprising, uh, solid one. They go three and one. Um, Not the best of competition, but hey, we beat Golden State. No matter what happens for the rest of the season, we won in Golden State. Like We can we can toss it all away outside of that. But uh, on that note, let's get in here. Uh, Richie, what's going on? Have you come out of the holiday malaise? Are you getting back into your uh, regular schedule yet? Yeah, I am. We had a, a three-day week this week in school, so it was nice to get back into the swing of things, have some structure in my life, like I said. But I don't know if I could have handled a full week of school coming back. Uh, it was hard to adjust a little bit, waking up early in the morning, but it was good to get those three days in, and now I feel like I got my bearings back for next week. Yeah, it was good to see the Hornets play well for the you know these past four games in California, so it was interesting to see uh, that they actually beat the Warriors, even though that um, Curry wasn't a part of the team. That that might be a little asterisk on that win, but we don't care. Yeah, somewhat of a caveat, but I mean, you know, you, you beat the defending champs yeah. in their house going across the country, you know, like whatever. Uh, BG, what's up, man? Not much, you guys. Uh, hanging in here, like Spencer, you were saying a second ago, excited for the start of ACC basketball season. Some fun some fun games in the league today, including NC State and Duke uh, in an 8 o'clock Nationals game on ESPN. But uh, no, things are good. 
glad to sort of stabilize myself a little bit after the holiday schedule and kind of settle in into this routine for the next next few months and stuff. So feels good and should say too, with regard to the Golden State, I mean, there's there's a pretty clear caveat. There was no Curry, but they went nine and two in the eleven games without Steph, and one of those losses was the Hornets. So. Hornets can at least hang their hat on uh, on on what was a you know Golden State certainly not the same offensive team but an awesome defensive team without Curry and the, the Hornets had a, a really good performance against them so fun to see them do well on the on the the West Coast swing I did not think it was going to go this well uh, but two and two at best yeah the Hornets really showing um, some fight on the West Coast showing some life the natural place to start here in Golden State. Um, 111-100 win um, in the Bay Area. Again, Golden State without Steph. But look, Charlotte outplayed Golden State. They wanted to win this game more than Golden State did. Um, <clears throat> they controlled, I mean, really, for the most part, I thought they did a pretty good job on Durant and Thompson. I mean, Thompson kind of got going a little bit. Durant finishes with 27, but I, I think you watch... Uh, this game from a defensive standpoint, and Charlotte made Durant work for everything. I mean, he made four of his five three-point shots, but but they did not let him get to his spots easily. Charlotte was really physical in this game, and uh, and the refs let it go, to be honest with you, which is a little bit of a surprise uh, when you're on the road. A team like Charlotte going to the defending champs, uh, the refs let it be a physical game, and it definitely played into Charlotte's hands. Dwight Howard, to me, easily his best game of the season. He finishes with 29 points, 10 of 15 from the field. You know, when they when Golden State tried to go small, Dwight Howard just bullied Jordan Bell around the rim, got to where he wanted to go. Um, and then, you know, when they went with Zaza in there with their traditional lineup, uh, Dwight Howard would just kind of pull him away from the basket and go go around him, which he's getting better at. If he just doesn't dribble the ball on the baseline, he's getting better at that quick little crossover and can get to the opposite side of the rim and finish. So, I mean, 29 points, 13 rebounds, 7 assists. And, and I think we might get into that a little bit during the show. Dwight is starting to show some better vision. Um, you know, with Kimba and the little DHOs, uh, in the ball screens, when he catches it, he sees the extra defender. I mean, he's really thrown some nice passes on this West Coast trip. Uh, outside of that, Kimball was not great in this game. I mean, really, it was just a team effort. Kaminsky's big off the bench. Lamb comes in with 11 off the bench. Uh, Batum actually had a pretty good game here, 6 to 10 from the field. So total team effort. Richie, your main takeaways from this one, there are a lot of them, but uh, let's say two or the three of the things that really jumped off to you uh, in this game. Okay, I'll do two. Uh, first one you touched upon, Dwight Howard. Definitely his best game of the season, uh, bar none. Final line of 29 points, 13 rebounds, and a 7 assist. And those assists were were the most surprising part of his game. He was very active on offense. I felt like he did a good job of setting and holding those screens uh, on the pick and rolls. And then when he got the ball in the post, it seemed like Golden State loved to double him. Um, and they kept they kept doing it. And I think they had success late in the second quarter, and they turned him over like a couple times in a row. But after that, he made Golden State pay for doubling him so often in the post. And it was surprising to see him give up the ball so willingly to the players around him. And a lot of assists, I would say the majority of assists, came out of the double team. And I guess that's the biggest thing to note is Dwight Howard, yes, he finished with 29 points, 13 rebounds, but those seven assists were the biggest thing that I saw out of him. And we all made a note of this. The team as a whole made more passes 
than their average, which I think was 285 is their average. 314 uh, were made in this game. And it's interesting to see that actually happened with Dwight Howard on the court. Uh, he was a big proponent in that. And we, we saw them make a lot of passes, I think, several games prior to this in Milwaukee. Uh, but that was without Dwight Howard when he got injured. But it was nice to see that we actually distributed the ball, passed the ball with Dwight Howard on the court. And the second thing that I would want to note is just how we defended Clay Thompson. I think early on uh, he had it going. He had 13 points in the first quarter. You know, they continuously ran him off screens. Batum just didn't have the the want-to or the ability to keep with them. Uh, Silas did a good job, made a decision late in the second quarter to switch MKG onto him. Uh, and then from then on, uh, it was much better in defending him. And even players off-ball made all the appropriate helps uh, to make sure that Clay didn't get those open looks. Even Dwight Howard helped on a, uh, a screen that uh, Clay was set free, and Dwight Howard you know, stuck with them for a little bit and then recovered. So those two things I thought were the biggest things, the passing and then you know, give credit to Silas for making that adjustment. Yeah, Richie, uh, good points on, on MKG's defense. Uh, I thought he was phenomenal in this game. And you, I mean, having a guy that can guard credibly Kevin Durant in one half and Clay Thompson in the next half is, is really impressive. And uh, KD with MKG as the primary defender in the first half goes three of nine. And he got hot in the second half once they put, when they put guys like Batum, et cetera, on him. Clay Thompson goes only two of six in the second half after, I think, eight of 14 or something like that in the first half. So you could just see sort of, and I'd love to see how many of those shots were contested by uh, MKG and stuff. Some of that's not quite publicly available, which is unfortunate, but he was phenomenal in this game. I thought another big deal was Charlotte had only, so it's weird for Charlotte to make only six three pointers and beat Golden State on the road. I mean, they shoot under 30% on three. So, you know, how do you do that? Well, they got to the free throw line a ton. That helps. They attempt, I think, 34 free throws in this game. Golden State also had 17 turnovers. Um, and, you know, look, their offense is really about 20th in the league when Curry you know, when Curry didn't play the last few, last 11 games. Uh, he obviously just returned and they've started freaking out again on offense. But if they're not as efficient on offense, plus, like, they're turning it over um, 17 times, that turns into 35 points off turnovers for Charlotte, which was big, too. Um, you want to know why Charlotte was able to score 111 points on the road at Golden State. A big part of that is is the the points off turnovers. So I thought that was a big deal uh, for the Hornets as well. And Richie, like you said, they passed the ball great. Um, 314 passes in this game, which is one of their best totals they've had in a regulation game uh, this season. And, and Spencer, it can't be said enough. I mean, I've banged on Dwight plenty this year. He was incredible this game. I have no clue why Golden State really felt the need to double him. No. Uh, even if he's barreling over Jordan Bell and getting dunks, like, you know, who cares, honestly? Um, I think there's maybe some hubris in Golden State to say, well, if we just do this, we'll just force turnovers no matter what, which would seem like a safe bet for them, but you don't really need to play that defense to force to, like, sort of uh, encourage those types of turnovers. I, I thought that was a little surprising on their part. But look, Golden State is an elite defensive team when Curry doesn't play, and for Charlotte to be this efficient on offense is really impressive. And one less stat, Charlotte shoots 81% at the rim against Golden State. Um, that's good against any team. Against Golden State, that's incredible. That's a, I mean, the Warriors are basically the best team in the league at defending the paint with Draymond and Durant, Bell, Iguodala, some of their other long-arm guys, McGee, etc. And so to shoot, they didn't take a lot of attempts in the restricted area. 
but to shoot 81% inside four feet, huge for Charlotte. No doubt about it. Uh, they And Charlotte controlled on both ends, I thought. You know, defensively, they they pushed Golden State to where they wanted them to go. I mean, they really shoved them off the three-point line. 50% uh, of Golden State's field goal attempts in this game were from the mid-range. Um, you know, they're not a team that's necessarily scared to take that shot. They have some mid-range kings, you know, Kevin Durant, <laughs> one of the best mid-range players ever. But, you know, to, to limit Golden State like that from behind the line, and they didn't shoot a bad percentage. I mean, they were 36.5% or whatever from behind the arc. But, you know, to really make them get to that mid-range area, uh, flow them off that line that consistently on the road is impressive. Um, and it's a defensive thing we've seen from a Hornets team, you know, before Silas, you know, as long as Clifford's been around. But, you know, that on the offensive end, we we really saw this strategy unleashed on this West Coast trip for Charlotte. And that is attacking the offensive glass, um, you know, post entry part, you know, instead of, you know, Travion, Lamb, doesn't matter who throws the post entry, instead of cutting to the opposite corner, keeping the floor spread, they're almost parking themselves in that opposite short corner and then crashing. I mean, the Hornets are going at the offensive glass with like three guys aggressively on the reg right now. Uh, quick stat here on this four game road trip. So in the last four games for every NBA team, Charlotte, 26 and a half offensive rebound rate. Uh, that would be good for fourth in the NBA in the last four games uh, for all teams. So, you know, this is not a fluke thing. I mean, this is something that they are unleashing. They know we have to live with these Dwight Howard post-ups. We can maybe, you know, we can find something. It's a risk-reward proposition, but, you know, if he's not a very efficient post-up player, but we're going to continue to give it to him, then hell, let's crash the glass, try to create some second chances, uh, and the Hornets did a great job of that in this West Coast trip. I mean, in Golden State, they score 18 second-chance points, gobble up 13 offensive rebounds. Dwight Howard gets six of them. Uh, I think five of those came in the second half. He just kind of – I mean, it, they were dagger offensive rebounds uh, and second-chance points during the second half against the Warriors. What else from this game? I mean, those are really the main notes I had. I mean, you, you said all we need to say about Dwight. I think uh, this is sort of one of those games. I mean, you guys probably watch the Warriors a fair amount too, right? Like they're on they're on TV all the time. They're a fun team to watch, et cetera. This to me seemed like a game where they really missed Curry. I, it just felt like so much, especially early on. I mean, it's it's cool when Clay's hitting from everywhere. I mean, he's automatic from just about every, any place on the court. Although his shooting percentages are still elite. They're not as good when Curry doesn't play. They're still incredible. But it just felt like, to me, everything for them had to be like the Golden State motion offense that usually is great, right? All the their, their split action, their cuts, pin downs for Clay, all that sort of stuff. And without, without Curry, they can't just do, hey, let's just run screen roll. You know, and, and if, the, if the opponent's going to play a drop scheme, well, then Curry's going to rain 25-footers. And he's going to make half of them. You know, if a guy like Livingston or Iguodala is handling the ball, you can just drop comfortably. You don't have to worry about the. You know Livingston's not going to shoot the ball. Iguodala's probably not going to either. And if he is, he's going to miss. And so it just felt like it was – they became a little more predictable because you kind of know what they're trying to do. They're trying to run these shooters off screens away from the ball as opposed to being able to just say, all right, let's run pick and roll with Steph Curry and Kevin Durant and, like, good luck defending that. And so this felt like one of those games where they really missed that because everything had to be motion off the ball. And for a team like the Hornets, who have now crept back up into the top 10 in terms of defense in the NBA, uh, they're number nine in the league right now. 
that they can, especially with a wing gut defender like MKG, like you can kind of, it, it's unlikely that it would work this well for the Hornets, I feel like, but it's, it's less of a surprise because I thought the offense for Golden State was a little more predictable and um, a little less like unstoppable. I think a couple times in this game, uh, they didn't really have a traditional point guard in. They had either Iggy or uh, Draymond running the point, and you knew everything was going to come off ball. But when you put when you put Dwight Howard in those pick and rolls uh, with you know Curry as the ball handler, yes, there were there would be a lot of damage done. But uh, it definitely made things a little bit easier on the defensive end. Did we see Kimba's staple play of the year when he stole it from Draymond? Yeah. And he, yeah, he like God. It's kind of like a double. You like corners Draymond in the corner, like Draymond. It's fifty-fifty ball, whatever it is. Draymond comes up with it, and then Kimba just like doesn't give in. Somehow steals it. I still like. I keep watching that highlight. I'm like, how does he steal the ball? But anyways, he steals it, dives out of bounds, saves it. Uh, you know, the whole bench is going nuts. Gets up, runs down to the other end. I think Dwight was bringing it up. But anyway, Kimba finishes on the other end. Right. I mean, it's just unbelievable play from the captain, and that. That gave me like goosebumps a little bit. I mean, like that's the kind of stuff I remember from two years ago uh, with that team that just killed teams defensively uh, and had some offensive juice. So that was the coolest play of the season so far. You, you've got to work so damn hard to like outscrap Draymond Green for a ball too. Exactly. Yeah, that, that guy. That guy fights for everything. Like every play depends. His life depends upon it. And if he does lose out on the ball, it's like a personal front on his manhood or something like that. And so for Kemba, a guy significantly smaller than him to sort of, you know, chump him in the corner like that. It was, I mean, Kemba is, you can't ever question this guy's um, intensity and competitive drive. It's up there. It's as good as anybody else in the entire world. Yeah. Yep. Um, last thing I really want to mention in this game is the bench. I mean, the bench was big. They weren't huge. I mean, you don't like look at the box score and say, man, I mean, from an offensive standpoint, they were just okay, I guess. But like on both ends of the floor, uh, Michael Carter Williams is starting to find himself a little bit slowly, but he has two steals here. That was kind of a regular occurrence, really, in this whole trip. I mean, Michael Carter Williams has been really good defensively recently. I mean, he just has. There's no way around it. Travion gives you eight points, a few offensive rebounds, um, great defense, obviously. I mean, this second unit is a ragtag group, but it's showing some juice. And especially when Kimma comes in with that group and Carter Williams checks out. I mean, that that team that lineup right there has been blitzing. Uh, just about anybody they face. But, you know, I, I do want to give the bench credit. I mean, they really came up big, and they did not um, they did not give back the lead in this game. They didn't give back momentum. I mean, you look across the board, Lamb's a plus 11. Kaminsky's a plus 7. Um, Travion's a plus 6. Carter Williams is a push, and J-O-B's a plus 2. So, I mean, in Golden State, with a group that's been pretty damn awful, uh, that's impressive, and it obviously paid off a— from a confidence standpoint, because they were good the whole West Coast trip for the most part, eh, maybe outside of the L.A. Yeah. Uh, Clippers <laughs> game, but but they were good most of the trip. So I did want to mention that. Uh, anything else from this game, Richie? I just thought it was ironic that uh, we, we did get to the line a lot, but we did not shoot the ball too well from the free throw line. But Dwight uh, was nine from nine for 12. So just to add to his good game, nine, from, nine for 12 from the free throw line, even though we only made, I think, like 68% of our free throws, which was uh, not like ourselves. Okay, then we went to the Clippers on New Year's Eve. I mean, it certainly felt like a game the Hornets should have won. They they had a, a, up to, what, a 14, 15-point lead in the second quarter. Uh, Kimba was just pure Kimba. Had it going 30 points for the captain, 11 of 21 from the field, 4 of 10 from behind the arc. Um, I mean, he was he was doing everything for Charlotte in that game. Uh, not a good Dwight night, 
but out of nowhere, totally random, Lou Williams, well, not totally random, he's been good, but Lou Williams <laughs> goes for 40 uh, in 37 minutes, 12 of, 12 of 21 from the floor, uh, 6 of 9 from behind the arc. I mean, it was just, Lou Williams was like in that video game Lou Williams mode where he could literally close his eyes, turn his back, and you know, throw it up, and it was going in. I mean, he, he he's always done this. This has been who he is across his career. Uh, and it was very frustrating to see because Charlotte just didn't have an answer for it. Um, and he really, I mean, he self-handedly beat Charlotte in this one. Blake Griffin had a good game, though, and a little bit unfortunate timing for the Hornets, you know, as the Clippers get Griffin back here recently. Uh, and he he was really good. I thought he had a lot of, um, he played with some zest in this one, which you haven't seen Blake do a lot uh, this season. But all around, just just a very poor offensive performance from Charlotte and, and Kimma just got no help. The bench was okay in this one, but up from the starting unit, I mean, it was ugly. Uh, Marvin didn't score. Gilchrist had six. Dwight had uh, an awful game. He scored four points, one of nine, turned it over five times. And then Nick Batum was just kind of Nick Batum. So Kimma had no help. No. And I, I think this was Howard's worst game of the season. Two games prior, he had his best game. And now he pulls off his worst game of the season in my eyes. Uh, you might you might think differently, uh, but just the way that he played this game was was not the way that you want Dwight Howard to play. After his performance against the Warriors just two days prior, uh, he has a completely different mindset with this game. He kept on taking mid-range shots, even when they weren't falling. Uh, I think he needs to stop shooting those first off, but especially if they're not falling. Uh, he had no points in the paint. Dwight Howard, no points in the paint. Uh, he took one shot within five feet. Okay, so then his seven shots came from five feet or farther, uh, and four of those being greater than 10 feet. So when Howard is taking shots away from the basket and ones that he can't make, you know that he's not being aggressive and he's settling for these mid-range shots in which he can't make. Uh, so I don't know what it was. New Year's Eve, maybe he wanted to get out of there, but that was his worst performance in my eyes um, and just couldn't get anything going towards the paint as a whole, as a team. Uh, the, the Hornets only attempted 18 field goals within five feet of the basket. Uh, that is 11 below their average. And we were forced into a lot of mid-range shots, and some of those came from Dwight Howard. Uh, we only made 33% of our mid-range shot. So I thought that was a big, a big talking point in my eyes was just Howard and not us, you know, not getting anything going towards the paint. And then one other note that I had that I want to talk about is Kaminsky. If you look at his stat line, he had 16 points, 16 points, shot the ball pretty well uh, from behind the arc. Uh, but his defensive game is still, still, still lacking. Um, he lost his man several times off ball. And here's my favorite play of the game. He was posted up with the ball in the backcourt by Montrez Harrell. And uh, the ball was being brought up the court. Montrez Hell went, went to the block, posted him up, and was able to get an easy basket. I, I just thought that was the funniest. I don't know if you've seen that play, but it was the funniest, funniest play to me. And it just epitomizes Kaminsky on the defensive end. So, yeah, he just has no physicality to his game whatsoever. Yeah, Bridgie, uh, that play cracked me up too. Look, I'm, Montrez Hill is from Tarboro, North Carolina. It's about an hour east of Raleigh. I've driven through there a bunch. Let me just say, if you make it from Tarboro, North Carolina, to the NBA, you play, you live and play in Los Angeles now, you don't let a guy like Frank Kaminsky get in your way of stopping. <laughs> I'm telling yeah. you, you've come too far to let that guy stop <laughs> doing literally anything you damn well please. No, this was uh, this was a bad game for Dwight. Richie, you sort of hit on, on the box score stats. So I, I looked this up playing around with filters the other day. In the NBA this season, there have been 19 games where a player has had at least five turnovers, 
attempted at least eight shots from the field and shot 25% or worse on those eight attempts, uh, Dwight Howard qualifies with that game against the Clippers. And that was the second. So of this has happened 19 times in the NBA this season. Dwight Howard accounts for two of those, including um, the game against the Clippers and then the other game against Boston at Boston earlier this year. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was in again, I'm sort of playing around with filters a little bit there and, and being maybe a little cheeky, but it was definitely not a great performance from Dwight and in terms of what you saw on the court or in the box score. And I actually thought there was there was one one sort of like leverage moment late in the second quarter. Uh, Kemba checked back in and it was the first play after he checked back in with about four minutes, a little under five minutes left to play in quarter two. Uh, he ran like a like a, a UCLA cut down, then came off a pin down from Batum into a handoff with Dwight. And it's a play you've seen he and Cody run a million times, and they get everybody going to the basket, and they get a bucket out of it. He threw it to Dwight, and Dwight was like a step outside the paint when he caught it on the move. He traveled immediately, and the Clippers went down the other way. So I, I thought that it was just that play was sort of emblematic of the whole game with Dwight. And yeah, just. The, the Hornets shot a lot of threes. That was certainly promising. Uh, they get up 33 uh, triples in this contest. They only make 11. Uh, the 17 turnovers, that's sort of a big deal. You know, Kemba had a great game, but there was just I, you know, no help, like uh, like you said earlier, Spencer. Yeah, I'm not going to add to the – you guys covered the Dwight game super well. That's an amazing stat, BG. <laughs> yeah. But I, I did want to talk about quickly Nick Batum. Uh, wasn't his worst game during this road trip. Uh, he was one of the few players on Charlotte's roster that still did not have an awakening on this road trip. Um, did a little piece on Queen City Hoops earlier in the week, just kind of looking back on the, the holiday season for the Hornets. I, I didn't have a whole lot of time to you know cover a lot of stuff for the website during the holiday season, so I just kind of recapped a lot. They went on with the Hornets. Let's just run down kind of Nick Batum's offense. There's a chart, so if you get a chance, go to queencityhoops.com. Just click on the holiday recap for the Hornets. It's got a lot of stuff in there. But Nick Batum, I did a little chart of, of his offense, where it comes from, how efficient he is. It, it's super ugly. All right, let's just run down it real quick. Pick and roll ball handler. <clears throat> he scores 0.71 points per possession. That's almost 20% of his total offense. Brian, is that is that pretty bad? That's really bad. That's like a, that's Dwight Howard post-up level bad is what that's, it is. It's, it's worse. Yeah, yeah, it's bad. Okay, so post-up. 0.71 points per possession as well. Uh, that makes up 13% of his offense. Uh, also awful. All right. Isolation, a little better. 0.93 points per possession, but that only makes up 5.3% of his total offense. <clears throat> this is the most efficient play in his book. The handoff, 1.05 points per possession. That's only 6.7% of his total offense. All right. Now, where he spends the most time of his offense, probably the only minuscule positive you can find in Batum's uh, game here. Off-screen type of plays. 0.97 points per possession. Still not very good, but I suppose passable. Uh, that makes up about 21% of his total offense. And then spot-ups, and this is probably the most depressing, spot-ups. And most of, most of these shots recently, I mean, especially last night, wide, Wide open. Like, teams are not really worried about Batum much anymore. You can see it in the defensive strategy. Um, Spot-ups. A lot of these are wide open. 0.76 points per possession. That makes up 13.5 of his total offense. Guys, you can't find a positive. And for a player that distributes his offense um, and, and has such a diverse portfolio in terms of how he gets his shots, uh, there's nothing good here. 
It's 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 terrible. Yeah, I I thought it was funny. I was looking around at some of Batum's numbers this morning, and just in the last four games, like the the four game road swing to California, he had a usage rate of nineteen point seven percent, like a little under twenty percent, which like I found myself being encouraged by. But that's a below average number, especially for a high usage wing. But I found it encouraging because in the month of December, he had a usage rate of 16%, which like we said on the la- on episode 49, like name me another $20 million wing that has a usage rate hovering around 15%. I mean, I, there, there are very few of these guys. And if they are, they're super elite defenders. If, you know, if you want to even throw Draymond Green into this, which I wouldn't qualify him as a wing, but like... That it's just it's not enough, and it feels weird to say, man, none of these possession types are efficient, but they still need to use him more. But I really, I, I really do think he's got to be more aggressive in the offense. I do think it's a little promising. Um, the last four games, he shot better, closer to the hoop, sixty percent inside eight feet, fifty fifty five percent from eight to sixteen feet from the field, and fifty six percent from sixteen feet to twenty four feet. So. You know, I mean, he's been a bad shooter from everywhere on the court this season. And I wouldn't read too much into these numbers in California, but a little bit of encouragement that he was that he was more active the last four games and that he was shooting better from, you know, mid range and closer to the hoop. Yeah, I, sh- I shouldn't beat up on him too much. really. I mean, he did have a good game in Sacramento. And the one thing I noticed in that game is he he is becoming more willing to play off of the Kimba Dwight pick and roll. Uh, or the Kimba Dwight DHO, you know, when when the help defender, you know, slides into the paint, on it, whether it be the Kimba drive or the Dwight dive, you know, Batum's flying up to the top and, and receiving, you know, the pass and against a scrambling defender, and and he's becoming more more competent, and he's just like he, he's just more willing there, uh, and he really showed that in Sacramento. I mean, that's where a lot of his points came off of, is just reacting uh, where his defender helped. Uh, and flying up to the top, receiving the ball and having space to operate. So, but it's you know, I just don't know like how Charlotte can more effectively use Batum. I think that's what the confusing thing is. I mean, it certainly seems like Dwight's going to get these post ups. Dwight and Kimba have to get better together, which it it appears to me they are starting to create a little bit of chemistry together. And Dwight's catching up to the speed of Kemba on these DHOs and ball screens and the way, how he contorts his body. Like Dwight's slowly coming around to that. But Batum, on top of that, has to learn how to play off that action. And he's just kind of always been a player who floats a little bit off the basketball. So for Charlotte and Steven Silas, you know, it's it's tough. It's a tough proposition to figure out how you really integrate him in because – Charlotte's turning a little bit of a corner here, but if, if they want to max out what this team can do for the rest of the season, Batum's got to he's got to wake up. He's got to be better. It's just that simple, and I, I don't know what the answer to that is outside of him just hitting some open shots here. I just don't know how he's used more effectively. He's got to be a second banana and a willing one, so it's it's difficult next to Dwight. I have a, I have a question for you guys. What do you think about moving him to the bench? And I know that, Brian, you said his stats with the bench weren't that great to begin with the start this season. I don't know how they are now, but I just feel maybe Lamb has slowly become a better off-ball player. Um, when you think of Lamb, you think of a guy that just, you know, his, his game is in the mid-range. He, he has handles that could get himself to the rim. But this year, that's really not much. I mean, he still lives in the mid-range, but he's done a much better job off-ball. So maybe he could fit with the 
the starting unit a little bit better and put Batum with the second unit a little bit more. I know they stagger the lineups and Silas has done a good job of that, but I don't know if that would would help that out that situation out a little bit because I know in my eyes I don't feel like Batum plays too well with Dwight, especially in that starting unit. I think it's worth experimenting with. I, I'm not really sure. My war, my main concern there is Michael Carter Williams offensively. If because Batum's going to demand the ball at that second unit, Michael Carter Williams, like what is he doing on the floor now outside of defending? What you is know, he doing anyways, not, though? Well, but at least he can set up the offense, right? And and you know what I mean. At least his job then is to get us into our offense, whatever that is. You know, get Job the ball so he can shoot. Um, <laughs> immediately but do it man someone's got to do it you you know but like here's my point richie if if my car williams is at least playing like the nominal point guard role getting us into our offense you have to like you have to guard the basketball right so now if you move him off the ball and batum kind of becomes that guy like now michael car williams now you're literally playing five on four does that make sense because like where are you going to put him like what's he doing now um I guess you use him like MKG or something like that, but that would be my main concern. But I do think it's worth experimenting with. I mean, Lamb <laughs> has shown some serious uh, juice with Kemba so far this year, and and I think he's a better player than Nick Batum right now, personally. Uh, so from that standpoint, it makes sense. What do you think, BG? I, I, I mean, first off, like the four starters of Dwight, MKG, Kemba, plus, and Marvin plus Lamb have been awesome this year. Like, great great point differentials a, a point differential that looks like it should be the starting lineup for a 50 win team do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like that that kind of good yeah and um you know just hasn't played all that much especially since batum came back from injury so i i mean i'm certainly not opposed to trying it and maybe if you're sort of talking yourself into the strategy a little bit more you think hey if we're, if we're trying to get nick batum more active and using more possessions Maybe the second unit is a way to do that because he's just he's clearly the most talented perimeter player. So he's got to use the possessions or whatever. I mean, that's maybe wishful. I I don't at this point, it's tough to think of a way to really motivate this guy to just shoot more or whatever. But maybe that's another way you could do it. I think he has the disposition to accept a bench role that still comes with a lot of minutes and and stuff like that. I don't think it would bother him or, or mess with the chemistry or anything. But no, I love what Jeremy Lamb's turned himself into a damn good offensive wing this season. And I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, if, um, you know, heading in, you know, depending on the next few weeks go, we can hit on this a little bit more later or whatever. But depending on how the next few weeks go leading into the trade deadline, I, you know, Jeremy Lamb might not be a bad little trade shift for the uh, the Hornets to have in their back pocket, too. Um, but in terms of a guy that's making only $7 million this season, getting a lot of production out of him. So no, I'm not I'm not opposed to that lineup but to that strategy at all. Lineups with Batum plus the bench have gotten crushed this year. But guess what? Most lineups without Kemba don't do well. So so why not try it a little bit more and see if anything sticks on the wall as you throw stuff at it. Yeah. I mean I think it's I think it's a great idea, Richie. And um, you know, to your point, BG Lamb, I, I mean, in terms of like realistic trade chips, I think he's number one. Like we can talk about the Kemba thing, but that's right. Probably not realistic, um, but yeah, let, like right now, I think you're going to get a first round pick for Jeremy Lamb, you know. Yeah. And I think, and I think I'd do that if I were Charlotte. <laughs> you know I mean, what? I would too, by the way. But tell me, you know, think about the team he's, he's so he started his career in Oklahoma City. Tell me the Thunder couldn't use Jeremy Lamb right now. Oh my gosh! Oh my! I mean, like he's what they need. 
Yeah, they need, it, yeah, they need defensive wings. I mean, that's what they've needed. It seems like for like five seasons now. But and and you know, and on top of that too, he you know he shoots 36 percent on threes, and so they don't have to worry about playing Roberson in crunch time. You know what I mean? Uh, Jeremy Lamb and and Paul George can totally be your wing. Anyways, they're a possible. Uh, when I was thinking about stuff the last few weeks, like they need another wing. They need one that's cheaper. He is both of those things. Um, yep. So I, I think that's something to keep an eye on with OKC and, and Lamb, especially since you know this is a team that traded for him as a draft pick five years ago. So clearly there's some sort of like institutional you know uh, belief in this guy as a, as a player because they certainly liked him as a prospect in 2012. Real quick, let's uh, let's take a quick break uh, to hear from some of our friends, and we will be right back. Real quick before we get into the Sacramento game, just real – I just want to do a little newsy tidbit. Uh, Travion Graham, his contract becomes fully guaranteed uh, this coming Wednesday, right? Is that right, Richie? Is it Wednesday? So the 10th, January the 10th. 10th. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So Wednesday, January 10th, um, that's going to happen. Yeah. So now the Hornets are in a uh, – not a great spot in terms of where they're going to fall with the tax, but that's another conversation for another day. But regardless of that, you figure that out later. Like you're you're in a bowl in a china shop trying to make the playoffs right now, and Travion Graham is really important to make sure you know that that happens, or at least you have a chance to make that happen. So that contract will be fully guaranteed, I think, no doubt, right, guys? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's a no-brainer. Like we said on episode forty-nine, too. Yeah. So. Check out for that Wednesday. You should see that news coming coming down uh, across yeah. Twitter at some point. Just one thing real quickly with, with uh, Trevion Graham, too, as opposed to why we think he's so valuable. Kemba and Trevion Graham, 245 possessions this season with Graham as the three. Uh, according to Cleaning the Glass, Charlotte has scored 122 points per 100 possessions with those guys on, on the court. An effective field goal percentage of 57% on those possessions. And they've shot 42% on above the break threes. And they've played 176 minutes together this season. Charlotte is plus 64 in those minutes with Kemba Walker and Trevian Graham on the court. It's a no-brainer. You, you, you guarantee this guy for the rest of the season, period. Period. And what's, a what's the most refreshing aspect about Graham's development <clears throat> has been he's, he's become everything that we talked about hoping he would become a low usage wing who can shoot threes and defend on defend multiple positions on the other, on the other end. I mean, he's literally morphed into that exact player, a player that uh, the type of wing that Charlotte could not find for years, for seasons. Um, you know, Jeremy Lamb's just not that guy. He's a high usage guy. He needs the ball, but Graham is the prototypical three and D guy. And you know, I I hope he ends up in Charlotte into the future uh, you know the tax concerns again might not make that a possibility but that guy to me has earned he's earned a contract whether it's in charlotte or not after this season he's a true three and d player and a guy that i think should stick in the league in in minutes with kemba this season uh graham is eight is a, or pardon me in minutes with kemba trevian graham 11 of 18 on three pointers 61 percent with Trevian Graham on the court to Kemba, 13 of 30 on three-pointers, 43%. Charlotte is the team with those two on the court, 41 of 92 on three-pointers, 44%. Those two guys have combined to shoot 24 of 48 from distance um, on the court together, 50%, which is 
pretty darn good, especially for a team that's completely strapped for any kind of shooting. That's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, Matt, close your eyes just for a second. Quick uh, exercise here. <clears throat> close your eyes and imagine Travion Graham on like Golden State or Houston. The perfect player. The, the perfect player. Perfect. Off of those guys, you know, the perfect, perfect. player. I mean, Houston. I mean, who would Houston rather have, Gerald Green or or, or Graham right now? I know well, Gerald, Gerald Green's going to shoot eighty percent from behind the arc. Maybe Gerald Green, but, but yeah, I get your point. I think there will be some regression uh, yeah. in there <laughs> have, to have a guy like Graham that can guard threes and fours and, and twos for that matter. That can also make he's shooting forty five percent on catch and shoot threes this year. Admittedly, on a small sample, but not nah, yeah. teams. You just can't have enough of these type of guys. Low usage wings that can guard multiple positions and shoot threes. The freaking Cavaliers could use this guy. Like Absolutely. The Cavaliers are playing. They're going to pay Amon Shumpert ten million, eleven million dollars this season. Trevian Graham makes ten percent of that. Who would you rather have if you're LeBron and the Cavaliers? Would you rather have Amon Shumpert? Or Graham. Especially um, at that salary. Yeah, for totally. sure. Yeah, for sure. That, that totally gets baked into the cake, too. It's, yeah. He's dirt. She's as cheap of an impact wing as you could find in the NBA. And not to backtrack too much, but like you said, he switches on to four sometimes. He was switched on to Blake Griffin and Montrez Harrell uh, a couple times in the Clipper game, and he did a way better job than Frank Kaminsky. So I, I just, I, I keep I keep bagging Frank, but like that, that to me just shows you everything about Travion Graham. He's going to compete yeah. on both ends. Yeah, he's, and if you, can, if, you, yeah. if you can hold your ground against Blake in the post, you can you can hang with anybody, you know, other than maybe Embiid or whatever. Because Blake's just been bulldozing people this mm-hmm. year. And uh, for Trevian to hang tough, I mean, that's you're staring down a bull in a china shop, you know, when you've got to guard that dude in the post. So, um, no doubt, impressive stuff from him against the Clippers. Yeah, he's a tough-nose-do-it-all type of player. And it'll be interesting, and you know, in this market this summer, not – not a market that's flooded with a lot of flexibility and a lot of spenders, but Travion's that kind of guy who it may not matter for. Like, you know, there's there's a five to seven million dollar, you know, totally. two to three year deal kind of written all over him uh, if he keeps this up. And like to your point, Brian, you know, 45 percent on catch and shoots. Is that what it is? Yep. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is a small sample, but like, hell, we're 40 games in here. You know what I mean? Like and the guy has had a role for quite some time now with this team. Yep. So, I mean, I, I think it's. I think you can hang your hat on Graham uh, being that guy for the rest of the season. And it's been so important to this bench uh, uptick that we've seen. Um, All right, let's get into the Sacramento game. Uh, To me, I think this is the Hornets' best offensive game of the season. (laughs) They go 143.5 points per possession, which is, I mean, like far and beyond anything like Golden State has ever done over even a short sample size. So, I mean, they just blitz the Kings. Charlotte shoots 57.3% from the field, uh, 15 of 32 from behind the arc. That's 47%. Uh, The Hornets only turned over three times in this game, hang 131 on the Kings. Now, look, Sacramento is a joke defensively, Mm -hmm. but the the Hornets hit shots in this game. Like, you still have to hit shots. And the, and the Hornets did it. I mean, this is an unreal game to watch. Everything going in. The Hornets had eight players in double figures. Uh, Batum has 21 in this game. His best one in quite a while. Eight of 12 from the field. Three of five from behind the arc. Oh, yeah. J.O.B. had 16 in this game. That's what I wanted to mention. Yeah, seven to nine from the field. This was like one of those games, Richie. I could just like see you sitting on your couch as you watch this game laughing. Because in the second half, like when J.O.B. touched it, it was going up. 
and they were going in in this game, and it was glorious to watch. Whenever I watch that guy play, I always laugh just because I know that when once when he touches the ball, he's he's hunting hunting the basket. I think Silas has done a good job of inserting him into the lineup a little bit more. I know that with the Cody Zeller injury, uh, he might not have had a, much of a decision to make, but I kind of like him on this team, and I hopefully it's not too much of a stretch to say that. To me, he provides just as much as Kaminsky. Is that a stretch to say? I think um, in terms of like, well, it's tough to overall say. Overall impact. Overall impact. I mean, he can stand out there like Kaminsky can. He does. He <laughs> you, know, you know that real valuable skill Kaminsky oh, yeah. has, where he just stands at the yeah. three point line. Remember, we've talked about it. Yeah, Jov can do that really well too. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I guess there's an argument to be made there. I, I don't know. I'm on the fence. Sorry, BG. What were you saying? No, it's, I'm kind of with you. I would still give the edge to Kaminsky. The fact that this is like a debatable topic is kind of a joke, right? Like this is a top 10 pick versus an undrafted guy that they're about the same age. Like, again, kind of a joke. I'll still give the edge to Frank because of his passing. But Well, J.O.B. doesn't it, know what a pass is, so. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, he, he does not. Indeed, uh, he does not. I, I was wondering, like you saw these games recently that that Monk and Bacon had playing with the Swarm up in Greensboro, where they both shot. You know, what did Bacon Bacon have? What forty field goal attempts in one of the games around Christmas? Do you think? Do you think Johnny O'Brien? There was some sort of like cognitive dissonance that he's no longer like one of those guys that goes between G League and like he was like, man, I wanted to go and shoot fifty times in a. He he's all of a sudden <laughs> for the first time in his life. He feels disappointed to be a full-time NBA player. Like he doesn't get these these once a week trips to Greensboro where he gets to jack up a hundred shots or whatever. Um, yeah, no, I mean he was he was incredible. Leave it to the Kings, literally the worst defensive team in professional basketball, to uh, to allow Johnny Johnny O'Brien to flourish out there um, the other night. I thought it was interesting that Charlotte shot 46% of their shots from the mid-range. You know, it's not yeah. typically a high-percentage shot, but they made 60% of these mid-range shots. Uh, MKG was 3-for-4, uh, Batum was 4-for-6, yeah. and then J.O.B. was 3-for-3 three three in that mid-range area. And I, I think J.O.B. does a pretty good job of doing the pick-and-pop in that range. And to me, he has the best handles for a big guy, and he, and he can maneuver and shoot off the ball uh, on the for for this team for this team uh, the big guys that can handle the ball. I feel like Job does a good job in terms of that. Yeah, well, one of the one of the other things I thought was sort of nice with this game too is it was the third game in a row Charlotte's taken at least thirty three pointers. You know they make fifteen of them too, which is great, forty seven percent. But uh, the Hornets have just seven games this season. I've taken thirty plus three, like at least thirty three point attempts, yeah. and um, you know the three of them happened in the uh, the last handful of days. I was, was literally like, getting ready to say, Brian. Yeah, the, the three point uptick. Um, I always look for in the in the shoot, excuse me in the shot profile. Uh, if you go to cleanintheglass.com during a game for the Hornets, if they get to thirty percent of their offense attempted coming from the three-point line, that's like the mark they want to hit and exactly what you just said. They, they did it in these last two games, Sacramento and L.A., granted against awful defenses. But still, like Charlotte needs to fight to get to that 30% mark. They just need to they, – they got to attempt more threes. So, yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. One of the things in California, and this is including the game against Golden State when they attempted just, just 23-pointers. And, again, this is a team that shoots too much from the mid-range. It's great when you can make a ton of them against a bad team like Sacramento that has Zach Randolph playing center in the NBA in 2018, which is something I never thought I'd ever see. But in this four-game road swing, the Hornets attempt uh, 29.5 three-pointers per game, 14th in the NBA. 
over that stretch. Charlotte shoots over 37% on these three-pointers. That's 12th in the NBA over the last week. That maybe doesn't seem like a crazy amount, but for the season, Hornets shooting 35% on threes. That's 23rd in the NBA. If you shoot more threes and you make more of them, it, man, it makes everything else easier, uh, especially when you're playing terrible teams like like the Lakers and Kings, et cetera. But no, that's uh, it, it's always good to see because, like Richie said, this team has a tendency to take a lot of mid-range shots. And if you make 60%, you're probably not going to lose. You make 40%, and good chance you might go down. Yeah. Why do the Kings play Zach Randolph so many minutes at center? It's so stupid. Like, why don't you just give those minutes to Willie Cauley-Stein? Like, why, why, I mean, why did you sign Zach Randolph in the first place? But uh, anyways, that's, it's so dumb to me. That doesn't make any sense. Like, it doesn't, like, why is George Hill there on a huge contract? Why is Vince Carter there? Like, what? Well, I understand. Like, I, I get, I get it from like a development standpoint. Like, we want our young kids like learning from these guys. But like, if you're just gonna trot Zach Randolph out there and, and yeah. let him have all Willie Cauley Stein's center minutes, yeah. and and play Cauley Stein at power forward, which is absolutely worthless pop- proposition, then like, what what's the point then? You know. I, anyways, that's another conversation for another day. But the Kings are terrible. They're so bad. So the last game of the road trip was last night for the Hornets in back in the Staples Center, this time against the Lakers, and the outcome was much better this time. Man, oh man, the Hornets came out, and they were they, – so L.A. said, okay, we're going to put Lonzo Ball on MKG, blah, 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 not guard him, and yeah. the Hornets punished that early. They went to MKG like five out of six possessions or something to start the game. It was, it was a lot. Uh, MKG scored on the first possession. Uh got a foul maybe on the second then the lakers started bringing an extra defender and all of a sudden the hornets were playing out of that marvin got going out of that yep. early in the game quick stat here mkg I, I was just curious because we have seen him put you know if teams want to put your weakest defender on him fine now the hornets are starting to experiment more and more with having mkg post up that matchup mkg on post ups this season the frequency is pretty low only four percent uh but it's but it's going up so I plugged in a few little filters here. Among players that have at least a 4% frequency in a post-up and have played at least 20 games uh, in the league, it's a long list of players. MKG is seventh in post-up plays at 1.15 points per possession. So um, we're starting to see a little bit of experimentation there, uh, and it's showing some some pretty good dividends uh, this is one of those things that I think Silas has been more willing to try too. You know, if, again, if teams are going to put their weakest defender on MKG, then let's play out of him. And he's a better passer than I. I think I, I forgot that he's not a terrible passer, and he started to show that recently with driving to the rim more often, with his head down, getting to the rim, kicking it out, and then off those double teams. I mean, he can feel the second defender. Uh, and kick it out. I mean, he doesn't get light. The second defender doesn't get all the way there where he's trapped. I mean, MKG kind of feels what's going on around him pretty well. Um, and, you know, Marvin really benefited from that start this game last night. So Hornets got off to a good start. Uh, I thought it was a really good all-around game. They were great defensively. Lakers missed a lot of open shots. But this is probably one of uh, the Hornets' better defensive games. Real quickly, they hold the Lakers to 92.5 points per possession, which is – about as bad as it gets. So, uh, really good overall performance for Charlotte. And this one finished the road trip three and one. 
I made the same note where they put Ball on MKG. I don't know if it was one of those things where they didn't want Ball on Kemba or where they'd rather have KCP on Kemba or if they just wanted to put their you know, their, their worst defender on MKG. I'm not sure what the, the, the thinking was behind that, but I think that Silas over Clifford has done a better job of adjusting on the fly and attacking mismatches or attacking weaknesses of the other team better than Clifford did. In, in my eyes, I know it's been a short stint so far, but I noted the same thing when they had MKG in the post on ball. He might not have got the assist, but he, he made, maybe made the secondary assist to Marvin Williams uh, for three, and he was killing it from deep early on. Uh, he went four from six from deep overall, but three and three in the first quarter. His other three-pointer came in the, th- in the third quarter, but uh, yeah, I just thought Marvin got it going early on, but a lot of that was because we worked it inside out. And uh, Mar- this what might have been Marvin might have been the player of the game uh, for this Laker game. It's hard to take away, especially these last two games against the Lakers and the Kings because they're just so bad. It's hard to get positive about this, but I thought he did a very good job finishing with 16 points and five rebounds. Yeah, I think it's interesting too to see how uh, MKG has attacked different types of defenses this season. So a team like the Lakers puts a guy like Lonzo Ball on him, but three games prior against Golden State. The Warriors do the, but they put Draymond Green on him um, and try to do the strategy that they do with Andre Roberson, where they let Green plays off of him and gets to float around and basically be a free safety and disrupt everything. And MKG's too good of a player uh, to do that on. I know he doesn't have the sort of horizontal spacing with his three point shot, but with his handle, his ability to cut those ghost cuts on the baseline and with his passing ability in the post up, you know, if he gets crop, gets, you know, if, when the ball gets swung, a smaller guy rotates out to him. He can score in the in the paint, like you like you just pointed out, Spencer. And um, it's just really impressive. Like he's got he's got legitimate tools on offense um, for a guy that's just 24 years old. It, it's been impressive to see him make um, a jump there this year. I, I thought a big stretch of this game too. I mean, maybe the game was already in hand, but what Kemba Walker did to close the half, the last like I guess probably 60, 75 seconds of the half. Mm-hmm. Uh, pick and hold the top of the key. Caldwell Pope makes the critical mistake of going under, which is just like, I'm sure every alarm in Kemba's head is going off. Like, all right, time to get this shot up. And he drains it. Next possession, he gets the two for one um, with, a, with a tough finish. And then um, I think it was a layup over Lopez. Then Hornet, the Charlotte gets the ball with a few seconds left in the half. Kemba goes down. So he scored on the last three possessions of the game, one of which he created by getting the two for one. The other one was a, you know, a pull-up three from 26 feet out. It was just, it was really, really impressive. Um, I mean, the Lakers are a bunch of traffic cones on defense right now. They've lost nine straight. Um, according to NBA.com, they're 15th in the NBA in defense total. But over the last nine games, they're 29th in the NBA in defensive efficiency, about 111 points per 100 possessions. The only team worse than them in that stretch not surprisingly, is the Sacramento Kings, who are a disaster at any point in time of the year or calendar. And uh, But no, nah, Kemba, I thought he lived in the pick and roll. Brooke Lopez is not ready for that, right? Like, Brooke Lopez, as the the guy that's guarding the big guy in the pick and roll, like, he's not ready to stop Kemba. Kemba can get any shot he wants every single time down the court against that defense. And um, I thought he ripped. I thought he... I mean, everyone, a lot of guys against the Lakers. I thought Kemba drove uh, everything. And I thought that close to the first half was just, was really, um, like, that's what superstars do in the league. Like, that, like, they just, he just, 
That's what Chris Paul does. Let me just take the like the quarter's about to end. Let me take it over for the next 75 seconds. We're about mm-hmm. to we're about to drop an 8-0 run on you before you can blink. And you're gonna go into halftime feeling shitty about yourself. And I, I thought it was really um just a heck of a run by Kemba to close the first half. Yep. Yeah, I think this is one of Kemba's better overall games on both ends of the floor of the season. He finishes 19 points. He has four steals in this game. Uh, I think all four steals led to 100% scoring right there in transition. So all four steals lead to a a transition opportunity for Charlotte that they finished on. Uh, So 19 points, four steals, seven assists. Uh, Real quick on the transition, the Hornets scored 24 points uh, in transition in this game and are just ridiculously effective in those plays. So uh, 23.5% frequency in transition. I mean, look, the Lakers want to play fast. When you're playing the Lakers, it's going to be a quicker game. Uh, but uh, in those um, in those opportunities, I mean, the Hornets are almost perfect. They're plus 6.4 points per possession uh, in those transition opportunities. So you just don't see that from Charlotte very often. I mean, they're playing a little faster this year, but they were just awesome in transition last night. Ten total steals as a team. So... Uh, they really, really made this game easier on themselves by getting those easy points. That's something that I would like to see more of is just pushing the pace a little bit. I've talked about this previously. When you when you stop and set up the offense with this team, when there's when they're lacking the shooting, bad things happen. So I, I think that turning defense to offense has definitely been a big key in their success on this West Coast West Coast trip. Um, like you said, they forced some turnovers out of out of the Lakers who are already prone to turning the ball over. But, um, yeah, I think getting out in transition is something that's that's going to be beneficial to Charlotte. Maybe not all the time, but definitely when there is a live rebound that bounces out pretty deep or if they get a steal, they should definitely push the pace. Yeah, um, like like you said, 10 steals. And according to Cleaning the Glass, the Hornets score almost 1.8 points per possession off steals in this game, which is really good, too. Um and that was good. That, that that was helpful because they're you know they didn't really have an amazing shooting game from anywhere in the in the half court. Although it is nice to see them hit you know a bunch of threes, but they shoot forty three percent on above the break threes. Um, but other than that, they were it was it was fortunate they were able to get some points off turnovers, points off steals. That's how they blew the Lakers out in this game. Yeah, a few other things I want to mention. Um, this one, the best of Jeremy Lamb. I mean, you know. Silas is running ATOs for him uh, very, very often with the second unit, and it's working a lot. And, and they're using him in a lot of different ways. Um, Brian, I think you pointed out on Twitter, it was either you or Richie, I can't remember, but, you know, it, it, Charlotte always comes out in this, like, diamond look on the sidelines out of bounds, mm-hmm. uh, whether Kimbo will come up or the point guard come up, and then, uh, you know, the off guard will go down. So they run the same stuff, but the, you know the point guard will will kind of come down, set a screen, and then the top guard, which is usually Lamb, will just zoom to the rim off off really what is an elevator screen, I guess you would call it. But there's nobody you know south near the paint, so it turns into an easy basket. Uh, and then they just use him on like simple curls on baseline out of bounds plays where he can get to that mid range spot and be effective. Lamb finishes with, finishes with 17 points in this one, seven of 13 from the field. Two of six from behind the arc. Both of his triples were catch and shoots. We talk about how important that is to him, catch and shoot threes, uh, and then just had a nasty dunk on Julius Randle uh, going down the lane. I mean, this was, uh, yeah, I mean, like cut your tape for Jeremy Lamb in this one. A lot of good-looking stuff. Uh, oh, and also Michael Carter Williams thought it was his best game of the season. Uh, seven points, two of three from the field. Uh, he actually hit a three in this one that looked very pure. 
Uh, and then three steals. I mean, again, we talked about that defensive presence that he's had recently. Um, he can switch. He's good. At, I mean, he was really, really good on the basketball last night. Um, so I wanted to give him a shout out because we've we've hounded him and he has struggled. But Michael Carr Williams really showed some juice last night. I thought. Yep. Um, by the way, now Jeremy Lamb as a cutter this season. I know two of our favorite plays we like seeing the Hornets run is that one sideline out of bounds play that Spencer you were just talking about. A diamond play when Batum inbounds and Lamb usually cuts down, or and we saw them try to run it again last night. That uh, that like pinch post backdoor play with Kaminsky at the elbow, where they they fake the handoff and in Lamb sprints backdoor, and they've been killing people with it. Um, two of those plays, Jeremy Lamb being used as a cutter, and it should be mentioned. Um, look, just five percent of this guy's possessions have been cuts this season, but Jeremy Lamb shooting seventy nine percent as a cutter this season, uh, 1.7 points per possession. That ranks in the 98th percentile in the NBA in terms of offensive efficiency off cuts. Again, he doesn't do it a lot, but he's been he's been really good. And he shot above 50% on two-point attempts after a pass from Frank Kaminsky. Those guys have a little chemistry. And again, plenty of it is from that little backdoor play that they love to run so frequently. Yeah, I would think so. I don't think I don't really see many cuts out of Lamb other than that baseline backdoor cut uh, that yeah. they like to run that play a lot. And again, we talked about it. They tried to run it this this game, uh, but the Lakers kind of stopped that as well. But um, you know, Jeremy Lamb had a great game. Most of it was either from three or at the basket. You know, when you think of this guy, you think of a mid range game, especially prior to this prior to this season, but. I think they were all like catch and shoot threes or at the basket for Jeremy Lamb. So that was good to see. And other than fast break points, I think we do need to note uh, the offensive rebounds leading to second chance points as well. I feel like we've been doing a good job recently with that. Uh, we had 22 second chance points and 11 offensive rebounds in that second half to kind of led to, led to those points. So getting points in a variety of ways just to keep this offense afloat. The, uh, what's been nice too is in California – the uh, the stretch fours were stretchy too, right? So like over the last four games, Mark six of twelve on threes. Frank Kaminsky goes seven of thirteen on threes. Uh, Martin Williams shooting forty three percent on catch and shoot threes this season, just absolutely bombing from deep. Um, three and a half attempts per game on catch and shoots, which is great too. That's top twenty five in the league. And by the way, we talk about our man Frank Kaminsky, his best strength, just sort of standing out there and being open. 25 feet from the hoop. Uh, Frank Kaminsky shooting above 41% on what the league defines as wide open three. So no defender within six feet. Very good. You know, this is fun, guys. Get to talk some like fun, ba- like good basketball, half decent basketball. You know, it's just, this isn't that bad when, when you get to talk you know, positive things. Real quickly, I just want to mention the Hornets' upcoming schedule, which is, is favorable. Uh, the team is at 15 and 23 now, and I have not checked as of this morning, but I think, what are we, four games out of the eight spot? Does that sound right? I don't know if anybody. 538 gives them a 39% chance now of making the playoffs. Ooh. So it's it's coming up. Yep. So let's so let's look at the upcoming schedule for the Hornets. Nine of their next 13 games will be at home. There's two back-to-backs during that stretch. I would say either Oklahoma City at home or Washington at home is the toughest game the Hornets have in the next 13. So what that tells me, I mean, the Hornets have already won in in Oklahoma City. Um, have not seen Washington this year. Is that right? Yeah, I don't think we've seen it. Wasn't. No, they no, they played the right around Thanksgiving. It was the overtime. Oh, that's right. 
That's right. That's right. Hornets won. Uh, that That's was a, right. one of the better games this season. Yeah, right so, around the So one of those two teams is the hardest uh, of this stretch the Hornets have coming up. They've already beat both of those teams. A lot of opportunity coming up. The next 13 for Charlotte, they're ticking in the right direction. Um, you know, you could certainly see that 538 percentage chance of being in the playoffs continue to go up. But, like, this is it. This is the stretch. You got to go 13 games. Like, you got to go 9-4 and four or, or something like that yep. over these next 13. Because, really, right after this stretch ends, you're, like, five days away from the trade deadline. And, you know, it, it's really time for decisions to be made. Yeah, the, the Hornets have a stretch of seven of eight games on the road. And during that period of time, it intersects with the trade deadline. Some winnable games on there, though. Atlanta, Phoenix, who's a disaster, and Utah, who is really struggling right now. Some other notes on the schedule. Charlotte has 44 games left in the season. Uh, 23 of those games will be on the road, about 52% of their games. They'll, they have eight back-to-back games left, and they have nine games where they will be at a rest disadvantage, where the team has more rest heading into it than they do. That's actually pretty good. And the other, I think there's only two other teams that have nine games, and then there's three other teams that have eight games. And they have ten games left on the schedule where they will be at a rest advantage, where they'll have more rest than the other team. That's also like a pretty good number, but closer towards like the median of the league. Interesting, interesting. I think that... With this upcoming schedule, we might put ourselves back in that that hunt for the playoffs, and that's going to make things tricky around the trade deadline. You know, but that's 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 what the Hornets do. Uh, but we're gonna we're gonna go over to the uh, the Twitter question section of this show and just kind of go quickly off of these. Uh, we got a couple of questions from Patrick Connor Seven, uh, and I'll throw this one out to you guys. I haven't given much thought to this, and obviously this is the first time you guys are hearing this. If the Hornets sneak into the playoffs this season and make the playoffs next season, would it make sense to give Kimba big money in? 19. So if they make the playoffs this season and next? I guess what he's saying is because it is promising, maybe maybe Kimba yeah. would want to stick around. Do you think it would make sense at his age in his career to give him big money uh, at that point in his career? Um, I haven't given much thought to this. I, just, I think I would have to take it a year-to-year basis and just kind of see. I know that to me, I feel like he peaked a little bit late in his career, and I, I just worry about him being, you know, 5'11", 6 feet, whatever he is, uh, getting pounded um, inside. He, he just, he's just His body is taking a beating, and we know his issue with his knees. And if he is, if we do give him, I guess it would be five years at that point, it would feel very similar to a Marvin type of deal to me, where he's going to be getting paid a lot at the end of that contract, where I don't think he's going to be matching that production. I'm not sure, uh, but again, I, I don't want to think about it right now. Maybe later on think about it, but what are your thoughts on that, giving him a five-year deal to kind of keep him back in Charlotte after a couple of years of success? I mean, it means he's it means he's like 33, I guess, in like the last year. that He'll be, he'll be, he'll be 29. So he'll be – he's 27 now. Right. So it would be like at the end of that deal. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Yes, right. Yeah. yeah, like 33. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which isn't like – that's that's. I would, I'd probably swallow that pill. I mean I I think that if the Hornets make – if we're you know living in this world of theory here with this question, Hornets make the playoffs this year – you know, this year they're going to get in as an eight. So if they do that, and we assume they make it again next year. Well, okay, you assume a little bit of improvement. Then yeah, I, I would I would resign Kimba for five years. I absolutely think so. I mean, at that point, you're you are locked into like 
driving down whatever this road of mediocrity, however you want to describe it, like you're, you're locked into that. If Kemba's going to stick around here long term, and I look from a marketing, you know, PR standpoint, it's good to keep this guy around for his entire career. Like that's a good thing for the franchise. You stay competitive. I, I absolutely think you give him five years. I mean, it's not like he's going to be like 37 years old or something crazy right. like that at the end of the deal. The, and it helps that he's a great shooter, right? Like that might he might age a little more gracefully than say Russell Westbrook, who we think right now is a better player. And you know he's probably about a year or two older or whatever as well. But I think I think what's important to remember too in this hypothetical of, hey, the Hornets make the playoffs in eighteen and nineteen. Like if they're to do that, Kemba's got to be a healthy, and b he's got to be really good. Like this team's not good enough to make the playoffs without Kemba being an All Star level player. So it feels like yeah maybe if you did sign him to a five year max in two thousand nineteen, you're paying for past performances. But at least you're you, it is you know. He's still under 30, and he's playing at all-star level. You'll know that. You know you will – like if you – again, if you're making the playoffs in each of the next two seasons, Kemba is the most important reason why you do that. Like unless Malik Monk next season turns into Brad Beal or whatever, you know? Like short of that, it's because of Kemba. Um, one of the other things that does help too, um, you know, you won't be dealing with a cap that's exploding most likely that summer. You know, it's not going to be some huge freak out. Um, and you so you will, you know – there may not be other suitors to, to just drive up the price or whatever with him. And the other thing to remember as well with that, that summer Dwight Howard's money comes off the books. So that's a big, that's, you know, that's a big, you know, salary you don't have to pay. So, you know, the Hornets right now to committed to 2000, the 2019, 2020 season, they have about $74 million committed. That includes options for Marvin Williams for 15 million and MKG an option for thirteen million. Player I mean, I options. Player options. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Those, yeah. There's, there's so, no, this team. This team has no club options like remaining on anybody. Everything's player option at this point. Yeah. Um, and you can damn sure bet that Marvin's picking that up um, at fifteen mil for a, a year of work. MKG is an interesting one, though. I think he is. Yeah, he is. He is. And um, and I I think for a while now I've sort of been comparing comparing the market between he and Roberson, just because they're sort of similar low-usage wings that are great defenders, don't shoot a lot of threes. But I got to think, because he can do so much other stuff offensively, that the, the market is warmer for him than it would be for Andre Roberson, simply because like he, he's got some skills offensively. Um, obviously not shooting. but So that's, that's, that's something to keep an eye on, too, because that's still a fair amount of money to have uh, committed to – to two two seasons down the road from now, it's a lot of cash, including those player options. And real quickly on the player option thing, I just want to point this out. I mean, this is way down the road, and this is deep in the least comment here, but like that would, in theory, be Marvin Williams' last year, possibly in the NBA. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, he might get another chance. I kind of doubt it. He looks like his body's really aging. Still can still shoot it, but think about that player option this way. It's a $15 million player option, but let's say Marvin thinks he can play a few more seasons, right? And let's say he really likes being in Charlotte. So would he possibly like restructure that deal to stretch it out over, I don't know, two or three more years, giving the Hornets some cap flexibility and then also extending his career, right? So everybody kind of wins. He'd He'd leave a little bit of money on the table, but I would... Don't don't forget about that possibility when we get to that summer because I, I think Marvin would seriously consider that. I, I think he would too. It's like a good faith stretch provision, right? You know what I mean? Like essentially, that's how it works. You know, exactly. we're gonna we're gonna yeah. knock this one hit, and 
And you know what? If he said, no, I'm not amenable to that, they could play hardball and just stretch him too. You know what I mean? Like they could, they could just say, well, bleep you. This is what we're going to do instead. So I think they're, they have some leverage in terms of that because 15 million is not a bad number to stretch over a few years or, or whatever too. So, um, and, and look, like there, sh- there should be some good faith exercise in that relationship because the Hornets went out. Yeah, the Hornets really bit. I mean, Rich Cho bit the bullet two summers ago to to sign Marvin to that deal that he knew was too expensive. But Brooklyn forced Charlotte's hand, uh, which they've done to a lot of teams. And so there's there's some good faith that probably needs to be returned yeah. uh, in that relationship. So I would just keep that in mind. The Hornets could have more flexibility that summer than it looks like on paper right now. Mm-hmm. I agree. Last question, uh, again, from Patrick Connor 7 on Twitter. He says, or asks, do you believe that Malik Monk will be the backup point guard next season? Um, I guess because Michael Carter-Williams will be a free agent. I doubt that we re-sign him. I-, I prefer Monk not to be our backup point guard. I just don't see him as a point guard type of player, but I do feel like he needs to play next to a point guard that can defend the two, like a Michael Carter-Williams. But who knows with our with our flexibility when it comes to signing another point guard? Is it just going to be one of those rotation type of deals? We just bring in someone on a get right deal uh, who might be underperforming or underperformed in previous seasons, like a Michael Carter Williams, and try to get him right. I'm not sure. I think that there could be a possibility that he's our backup point guard, but I prefer him not to be a point guard. I'd rather him play off ball. But I don't know where where we go in the point guard market after that. Uh, this, this is a really good question. I, I don't, I think the Hornets would like to hope that could be an option. Um, I, my gut would tell me that they're tired of living in this one and done market with the backup point guards. They've struck out, you know, now two seasons. Well, yeah, two seasons in a row. Um, I don't know. I, there's two, this is like a two part question to me. Number one is I don't think so. I don't think he'll be ready. And then the other part of that is I'm starting to worry about Malik Monk a little bit. Like I'm, I'm legit becoming <laughs> concerned now. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm like, I'm starting my fingers bent on the panic meter and I'm, I'm like halfway in from pushing that button all the way down. Um, I'm worried about him and I'm, and I watch his body language right now when he does get spot minutes and I look at his, you know, Greensboro swarm box score and see that he's chucking 21 threes in a game. And I, I, I I wonder how seriously he's taking this. And I know that's like a broad statement, but I don't want to speculate, but something tells me Malik Monk needs to grow up a little bit. Um, I, I just get that feeling. I don't know. The um, Yeah, I don't think he – I'm worried about him too, by the way. Uh, the – you know, I mean the guy – he can't even get minutes unless they're up or down by 20. Um, which is not where I thought the Hornets would be at the midpoint, essentially the midpoint of the season with Malik Monk. So that's disappointing. You know, I think there's a chance he might be the the backup point guard next season only because, like, I, I don't know what other options this team is going to have, man. Like, they're, they're, are, they're already running up against the tax for next season. And they've got a ton of big contracts, including, you know, Dwight and Nick Batum are going to make – damn near 48 million dollars combined or pardon me yeah 48 million dollars combined the next season like boom that's almost half of your cap space to those two guys um so i don't know what their options would be in free agency i mean if they went that route richie i'm almost certain they would go the get right route that you were just talking about like they did with mcw this past summer simply because man like they don't have um 
you know, they don't have uh, they don't have a whole lot of other options. One other thing, I guess, would be the draft. You know, like let's say the Hornets have a lottery pick, hypothetically speaking. You know, maybe you know you're not going to get unless they just totally tank out. You're not getting Trey Young, uh, but maybe you get Colin Sexton from Alabama, who looks pretty good. I mean, maybe you get Trayvon Duvall from Duke or whatever. So you have another one of these sort of like young stud point guards in the pipeline, which maybe a gives you some leverage over Kemba in 2019 too, yada, yada, yada. Like maybe that's another way to sort of satisfy that need. So I think because of that, there's a chance that Malik Monk could be the backup point guard, especially since, you know, you've heard Clifford say it multiple times where we think, you know, to maximize this guy's skills, he needs to at least have some minutes at the point guard position, you know, whether I agree with that or not, um, doesn't really matter. So I I think there's a chance that he'll get minutes there. uh, But I, worry that it's it doesn't seem like a good idea right right and, yeah. um, there just aren't a whole lot of other options because they're just they're capped out period yeah and, and real quickly I, I would i would think about it this way too like yeah my gut is that they're not going they don't charlotte doesn't want him to be the back of point guard next year. like like if they come to that place that's not a good place for them to be like that's not a competitive place to be I would watch, like we talked about Jeremy Lamb's trade value earlier. Like I would watch a move, mm-hmm. just you know, hypothetically speaking, Jeremy Lamb for Darren Collison and TJ Leaf or something like that, right? Like yeah, right. Uh, Bontemps in his uh, Tim Bontemps, um, Washington Post, you know, wrote an article about Kimba yesterday and how the Hornets should should trade him, blah blah blah. So, anyways, he mentioned this this possible trade with Kimba going to Indiana and TJ Leaf and Darren Collison were part of that deal. Um, I was that was intriguing. I think that um, thinking about it in not necessarily the Kimball way, but more like Jeremy Lamb, does Indiana need a wing? I, I think they need anything. They make them better right now. I think they want to make the playoffs. Uh, Jeremy Lamb, again, for Darren Collison and um, and TJ Leaf, now you have your backup point guard moving forward. Uh, Lamb is out of the rotation, so now there's room for Monk to slide in, you know, as a true shooting guard. And then, you know, and now you have maybe cap flexibility to bring Travion back and give him more minutes. So thinking about it that way, too, I don't think they want Malik Monk to be their backup point guard next year. That deal is similar to a couple weeks ago. I think it was two episodes ago. I think it was 48 when we did a lot of the hypothetical trades with Kemba. The one that I, one of the ones that I floated was to Indiana and it was for Collison, and I included Sabonis just because I wanted a better player. Yeah. <laughs> a little selfish, probably. But, uh, but that was, that's, I mean, like, Indiana, yes, they could use wing depth because Oladipo's missed the last four games, and they've gotten destroyed in each and every single one of them. Um, but really, like, Oladipo comes back out. If you pair Kemba and Oladipo together, like, man, that's the best That's the best offensive backcourt. I mean, that might be better in the East. That might be better than Wall and, and Beal. And, yeah. uh, in in Washington, it, it's certainly close. Um, you're splitting hairs, maybe. So, and and then it wouldn't have to all be Oladipo in the clutch, and so you'd have Kemba as well there too to play with Miles Turner to do pick and pop, pick and roll. I mean, they would be a, a tough cover, especially with Bogdanovich, you know, spacing the floor around those those pick and rolls and stuff too. So, I think Indiana is super interesting as a trade partner with the Hornets. Uh, BG, uh, I hope you realize what you just did. You just angered. <laughs> the large church of of uh, of Wall and Beal. Uh, that, that's that's a yeah. big following. That's a big church, and uh, they pray to the altar. Um, you know, of, of John Wall and Bradley Beal. So I hope the Zardcast boys don't listen to this one because those are fighting words. <laughs> I'm up to have like my back. You know, my eyes turned my my eyes open, looking for people dressed in all black that might. Uh, <laughs> Very good. Very good. Here, uh, 
I love the Wizards. They should go win some games and then maybe start talking talking junk to man. We just threw a, a, a big time amount of shade at the Washington Wizards in like thirty <laughs> seconds. That was impressive. <laughs> Uh, happy to do it. Fighting words in the Eastern Conference, baby. Uh, Richie, we got any more Twitter questions? We got one there? last Twitter question. Is Lamb a legitimate candidate to win Sixth Man of the Year? Uh, this is coming from at D-Train for Life on Twitter. I think playing for the Charlotte Hornets probably hinders this chance a little bit, not being in the limelight that much. Um, but I'm sure there's better candidates out there than Lamb. But I, I think that Lamb's had a great season off the This might be his best season of his career, just the way that he's expanded his game on the offensive end. He was so he was so much concentrated in the mid-range, and now, now he has expanded his game in many ways, uh, especially out to the three-point line. But I, I would think that Kali... I mean, who would who would get it over him? Eric Gordon, maybe. You know, he's in the limelight a little bit more. I know he's on the Clippers, but what about um, Lou Williams? Lou Williams. I think he's running. So I mean, those guys can light it up off the bench, and I, I think that's kind of what voters look for. I think a lot of times it's very heavily focused on who can come off the bench and light it up in the in the point category when it comes to the yeah. sixth man of the year for whatever reason. Uh, but I think being in Charlotte probably doesn't help that fact either. So I don't think he's going to be in the the race for that agreed richie um but i will say that jeremy lamb is a six man a year in my heart um that's for sure that, that guy's been so good this year and it's so fun to watch so yeah but i agree with you richie i, I don't i don't think there's any chance that he's six man of the year unless he just like hits an extra gear uh here in the next few months yeah um i am uh i'm right there with you guys uh in terms of i i think he's deserving of, of recognition in the way that Jeremy Lin two seasons ago in 2016 was deserving of some recognition as a, as a sixth man too. Um, I got to think at this rate, it's, it's, I mean, Eric Gordon's been great and he won it last year, but Lou Williams has been just, I mean, he's just doing absurd things off the bench for the Clippers. We saw it against the Hornets uh, the other night. And the one thing that Lamb sort of does have going for him, at least is they tend to give this award to, to high usage wings that score. And obviously, he's not scoring at the same rate of Gordon or Lou Williams, but he does fit the sort of bench. They give they tend to give this award to bench scorers, right? Right. Not Andre Iguodala in Golden State or something mm-hmm. like that, too. So he does fit the sort of mold of what a six man of the year candidate looks like, like a guy that comes off the bench and hits threes and scores a lot of points, whatever, which he does. But uh, if that if that's the sort of leading criteria, then no one's doing that better than Lou Williams right now, you know, out out west, for sure. Yeah, and that wraps it up for the Twitter question. So definitely um, keep sending those in. Uh, I know that Jeremy Lamb is the uh, sixth man in your heart, Spencer, but J.O.B. is the tenth man, tenth man of the year in my heart. <laughs> it's so, all of our hearts. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, but definitely keep sending in Twitter questions because it feels like sometimes we talk about the same topics over and over again. So it's it's nice to hear from yeah. you guys uh, and your input, and uh, we definitely shout you out on the show. No doubt. No doubt about that, Richie. Please uh, connect with us on Twitter. Uh, I think we do a pretty good job of interacting with everybody and and a goat. And again, we appreciate um, everyone that listens to us uh, regularly and and interacts with us. So I would like to make that more of a part of our show, to be honest. Um, All right. Very good. Well, uh, the Hornets are off until Wednesday, I believe, against Dallas. So that'll be the Hornets next game. Uh, And then they stay at home. I don't have it pulled up right in front of me. I think against OKC on Friday night, I believe. I believe so. Uh, Utah. Back, be, back. Utah and OKC. 
you, yeah. Utah, OKC, and that's a back-to-back, I think, Friday, yeah. Saturday. And Correct. So, um, so opportunity, you know, certainly coming Wednesday night against the Dallas team that is, is frisky because Rick Carlisle is their coach, but just not very good. Um, Hornets need that one. A lot of home games coming up. We'll see what happens. But all of a sudden, here we are, uh, and Charlotte has some life um, and, and a little bit of a heartbeat as they plow forward to try to make the playoffs. All right, guys, this was a fun episode. And again, it was nice to talk about some positive aspects of this team. It's some good basketball. I feel like it was never going to come again. The sun does actually continue to rise. So um, thank you again to all of our listeners. This was episode 50 of BuzzBeat Radio, which we are extremely excited about. So until next time, don't forget, we are a member of the Almighty Baller Radio Network. And don't forget to follow our friends at SportsChannel8.com. Follow them at SportsChannel8 on Twitter. For Spencer, that's Richie. That's BG. We'll see you next time. Go Hornets. Hornets.